0: The Crazy Bitches podcast deals with sensitive and potentially triggering material and likely contains adult content and language. Please take care of yourself and any other little ears that are listening. Any views expressed in this podcast, no matter how brilliant and insightful, are our experiences and opinions only. They are not intended to be taken for medical advice. If you are looking for a diagnosis and or treatment, please see a medical professional. You're listening to Crazy Bitches, the weekly podcast where we delve into the scary and sexy world of women's mental health. I'm Kendra, and I'm doing something a little different this week. So it's just me this week, and I sat down with Leslie McBain, the co-founder of Mom Stop the Harm. And for those of you who are not familiar with Mom Stop the Harm, what Mom Stop the Harm is, is it's a network of Canadian families who have been impacted by substance use related harms. And the purpose of it is twofold. It's to lend support to families who have been impacted by drug harm. But it's also an advocacy network. And if you've never heard of Leslie, Leslie has a pretty amazing story. And I don't want to go too much into it here because you are going to hear her story in a moment. But basically, about seven years ago, Leslie lost her son, Jordan, to a drug overdose. And he was her only son. And being a parent myself, I can only imagine the grief that she must have felt. But instead of just succumbing to the grief, what Leslie did was she got together with two other moms and formed this amazing organization. And they do advocacy. They support other people. They campaign. She often does media and she advocates for policy change. So she meets with politicians and she's very busy. She has basically not stopped since her son has died trying to advocate And he was her only son. So she essentially doesn't have a horse in the ring, right? So she does this to basically make sure that other people's children do not face the same fate that her son did. So she's an extraordinary woman. I heard her talk in 2019 at the BC Center for Substance Use conference. And I was just really moved by her passion and the way that she talks about people who have been lost to drug related harms. And you'll hear it when you listen to her story. Even when she talks about people that have been lost to drug deaths, at one point she kind of estimates how many people have been lost. And then she says, you know, think of how many families that is. And that's really how she thinks about things. She doesn't just think of people that we've lost as just numbers. She thinks of them in terms of families and real people. And I think that that's very important, you know, because that's the kind of people that we want advocating for change and advocating for legislation. So I think that that's what's so special about Leslie and also just about Mom Stop the Harm in general is that they do offer that support. So if you're at all interested in Mom Stop the Harm, they do have a website. It's momstoptheharm.com. Um, they also are on Instagram and their handle is at MomstoptheHarm. So pretty simple there. You can check them out. Uh, you can donate there. You can also join if you have lost someone to drug-related harms um, and need some support. You can you can join the network. It's free to join. And And you can also donate to them and just stay tuned and listen to Leslie's story. Stick around. It's worth it. So much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. We're a relatively new podcast. We just launched in January, and you are one of the people I thought I would like to ask because I've admired your work for some time. I heard you speak at the BCCSU conference. I guess it was in 2019 in March. And then this weekend, I saw the really beautiful article in the Globe and Mail, and it just made me think of you all over again because I think with the work that you do through Mum Stop the Harm, you really put a face on the opioid epidemic epidemic. And I just thought that you would be the perfect person to kind of give some perspective on this because it's, I mean, we all know we're in an opioid epidemic. It's a public health crisis and it's been ongoing for so long and it just doesn't seem to be ceasing, right? So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about what the history of Mom Stop the Harm is? What kind of brought you to this advocacy work? Of course. And thanks for asking me to do this. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. In 2014,
1: my son Jordan, my only child, died of a prescription drug overdose. He had been using drugs, I think, recreationally, and it got out of hand. And then he ended up hurting his back on a job site and was given oxycodone by our family doctor. The doctor gave him oxycodone and no other treatment for about seven months. And so Jordan was firmly addicted, probably within two weeks. and. I even went to the doctor, because he's my doctor as well, and just said, look, please don't give this kid opioids. He's at risk, and so on. And he thanked me for the information, and off I went. Well, like I say, after about seven months of this, where I could see Jordan in decline, I didn't know much about addiction. I, Mm -hmm. I really didn't. I knew what it was, but I really didn't know how to deal with it. But he was Jordan was with us, and we were always mad at each other and all that, but didn't really know what to do. Anyway, he finally said, look, um, I'm addicted. I need to go back to the doctor. I need to go to detox. Will you come with me? Because he was afraid that the doctor was going to be really angry. And, and that is exactly what happened. We got there, and the doctor, after Jordan had said his bit, and said, I have a problem with the drugs. I need more and more, and I want to stop, and I want to go to detox. And the doctor said, the doctor just started yelling at him. And, you know, saying things like, "Well, you've been lying to me," and you know, I should have known that if an addict's lips are moving, he's lying. He actually said that, yeah. and um, and I finally just said, "We came here for help, you know, and could we just move on?" And he said to me, "I don't need a social worker in here." That was to me anyway. Yeah. So that that happened. That was horrible, and that was my first. Inclination of what stigma looked like, my first brush with it. So, long story short, we got to detox. Jordan wanted to go to detox, and as probably you and your your listeners know, detox is only about twelve or fourteen days long, average, Mm -hmm. and it does clean the body of the drug, but it does not address the reason for addiction, the addiction itself. It just does not. So, when he left detox, we couldn't find anything. We looked for. I looked for a psychologist, a psychiatrist, counseling in Victoria around where we live. I was even going to, I was calling doctors in Washington State, trying to get Suboxone, actually, because we knew about that. Yeah. Um, Nothing worked. And Jordan ended up going on a little shopping spree with walk-in clinics, and he got quite a handful of drugs. And he, some days later, I, I don't even know what the timing is, but he took a combination that killed him, that stopped his heart. And all these drugs were in therapeutic amounts, but it was the, I believe it was opioids and benzos and, you know, things that you shouldn't really take together. And um, yeah, so that, that was, of course, just, I can't even go there with, with how, how that all felt, except that I just couldn't function for, I don't know, months. Um, Mm -hmm. I slept a lot. That's a story in itself. But I learned about two other women who actually live in Edmonton. Who had similarly lost their sons to drug harms. And we met on the phone and online, and uh, I'm from Edmonton. My family's there, so I went to meet them, and we, I don't know, I guess we just sat around and said, what are we going to do here? We don't want this to happen to others, and that's where it started. That was probably in early 2015. So it was Petra and Lorna and myself, and Lorna and I end up going to New York for the United Nations special session on drugs. And we met people from all over the world there, advocates and speakers, and and that really just solidified our idea. So we started, very shortly thereafter, started Mom Stop the Harm.
0: So you realize that this wasn't just your son this wasn't just her son this is a systemic issue this didn't just happen because your doctor gave your son too many narcotics this is something that happens over and over again and i hearing your son's story and this story is one that i hear over and over again and i think that people have this idea that especially when it comes to people that live in the downtown east side that they just grow up there and like it's to be expected or that you know they're just IV drug users from birth or something, right? But this story of someone getting a prescription from a work injury or a sports injury or something and then not being able to get more from the doctor because they become addicted and they need more and more and then the doctor cuts off their supply and then they need to turn to street drugs. This is a common story. This is a story that we hear all the time. And this is how a lot of people get addicted to drugs. So people seem to think that this can't happen to them or can't happen to their children or can't happen to somebody that they know. But this happens all the time. And so this is a societal issue. When you went to the doctor and your son decided to ask for help and went to that doctor, what was his reaction and what was your initial reaction being kind of turned away and not offered that help? I mean, I'm assuming that it must have been hard for him, first of all, to go to you for help because I have addiction issues myself. I have an alcohol use disorder. And I just know that shame and isolation Where addiction lives, right? It's a disease of isolation. And so, to first of all admit that you have a problem takes a lot of courage. So, for a young man to go to his parents and ask for help, that takes a tremendous amount of courage. And then for you both to go to that doctor and ask for help, that takes courage. And so, to be met by somebody that you expect to give you help, so to be met with contempt and judgment, how did that feel?
1: We were both so angry. Mm -hmm. We were both, Jordan and I were really close and he lived with us most of the time. He'd left home and gone to live with some friends, you know, after high school. And then he was back and forth around the islands. And so he was with us a lot. So I don't actually think it took much courage for him to come and ask me because we were close. He knew that I would jump at the chance to help him. Mm-hmm. so so that was there and there's a good solid foundation there we were both so angry at this doctor and the only thing he did for us because i just absolutely insisted on it was that jordan needed more drugs to make it to detox he needed more oxy and so at the end of the appointment i just said to him look i need you to give him another prescription to last the 14 days or the 12 days or whatever or two weeks whatever it was that we had to wait for him to get to detox." Mm -hmm. And he did that. And just because I won't bring this up again, probably, but it turned around to bite me because after Jordan died, I uh, made a complaint to the College of Physicians and Surgeons and several of the walk-in clinic doctors that Jordan had gotten drugs from and this family doctor were all named in this complaint. And so they were all writing letters to the college, you know, all this stuff was going on. And the family doctor said that I was procuring drugs for Jordan. (laughs) So, you know, and they had, the college had said to me, this is the end of the discussion. You don't need to reply. And I said, Oh yes, I do. You know, I I just gave it to them and said, this has to be on the record. I did not, this is how it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, um, yeah, it was, um, really, we were, so, we were angry more than anything. Jordan is a, was a very strong person in his own right. Mm-hmm. There wasn't too much that I could see that would make him be ashamed. Mm-hmm. He, he, he knew himself very well, but at the same time, he was addicted. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, anger was the biggest thing. I, I could count eight ways the system failed us between the time that he injured his back till he died and like you say, it's systemic. It's physicians' ignorance around addiction. It is their stigma around it. Not all, by all means. I mean, there are some really good physicians out there. I'm a big fan of addictions doctors all over the place. But yeah, and then going into detox and having nothing afterwards and having no suboxone, but this is in 2014, you know, or 13, actually, just the end of 2013, not being able to find suboxone, not being able to find the treatment, so on and so So, yeah, I you know, I feel, sometimes I feel as though if the system had been better, Jordan would have recovered. Mm-hmm. I always said there was three things that were going to happen. He was going to either die, he was going to recover, or he was going to go to jail. Because, you know, at the end of the, somewhere in there, he was buying and dealing drugs. And and he was kind of a big personality, let's just say. And, and I could just see him drinking and then telling his friends and then something bad. would You know, I had all these. Yeah. Bad nightmares of what could possibly happen. But anyways, the bottom line is he died and it shouldn't have happened. If the walk-in doctors had been responsible enough to check PharmaNet to see who had given him what, uh, he might have had a chance.
0: But or the pharmacies as well, right? I mean, I'm a pharmacist uh-huh. and pharmacies uh-huh. also have access to, to PharmaNet, yeah. right? I mean, so it's also pharmacies and pharmacists' responsibility to be checking that. And a pharmacy and a pharmacist is actually uniquely positioned where they can see everywhere that a person has filled a prescription. So, I mean, that's another point of intervention yeah. there. Clearly, there was a failure there as well. That's just my little two cents because I'm yeah, a no, I, you're,
1: right, you're but... absolutely right, and yeah. and at the time it never occurred to me, but we did have a pharmacist who I've talked about in public, but I never say her name because she's still a pharmacist, and she was awesome. Sometimes the doctor would go on vacation. He did this twice and not give the pharmacy Jordan's prescription, mm-hmm. and she knew exactly what was happening, and she'd front him. So mm-hmm. he could get through the weekend, let's just say. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was, you know, it's against the law and against against the rules, I suppose. But she and I talked many times. She was so kind and so understanding to him that, yeah, I couldn't have done it without her, so.
0: Well, I mean, it is actually within the scope of practice to do an emergency supply, even for narcotics. Is it? Uh, Yeah, most pharmacists won't do it um, just due to liability issues, but it it is actually within our scope of practice to be able to. Like, I've done it as well for, for patients, but, you know, you have to just make sure that you have a really good rationale, right? Pharmacists are often very worried about liability, so if something goes wrong. But, I mean, from my perspective, I... Think that it's probably doing the patient more harm to not give that medication in an opioid crisis than. To give it. Oh, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it all depends how you look at the consequences, right? So, to me, the consequence would be that person will be going out to use an illicit supply, not that I'm going to give them an emergency supply of their regular dose of methadone or Suboxone and that they might overdose on that. Like, that's much less likely than them overdosing on an illicit supply of medication. So, yeah, but, you just have to weigh the costs and benefits. And, yeah, um, she did that. And Hmm. So your son died then before the fentanyl crisis kind of hit.
1: Yeah, there was fentanyl around. Certainly, mm-hmm. my my colleague and co-founder Petra, her son died. Danny died very shortly thereafter in Edmonton of fentanyl poisoning. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty close. And he, Jordan, never bought street drugs. I'm pretty sure, but we were on Pender Island, so not that there aren't drugs here, there are drugs here, no question, and more now than ever, but back seven years ago, or eight almost now, uh, yeah, it was a different scene.
0: So prior to this happening with your son, what was kind of your take on drug use? I guess you knew that your son was using drugs recreationally. Did you discourage him from using drugs? When I was young, my parents were very strictly like, don't do drugs, (laughs) you know? And then, I mean, I had friends whose parents were, oh, if you're going to use drugs, make sure you call me for a ride home. I mean, you know, there's always that scale of different type of parental attitudes. And I often wonder what I'm going to be like. I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. and I mean, I work in harm reduction and I work in mental health and addictions. So, you know, I kind of wonder when it comes right down to it, what is my approach going to be? And I'm just wondering, like, prior to this happening, what was your approach when you knew that your son was recreationally using drugs?
1: Um, Yeah, he started smoking pot at about age 13 or 14, I would guess. And I think he and his friends here started drinking right around the same time. One thing that I need to back up a little bit on is that Jordan had been diagnosed in grade 4 with a low level ADHD and his grade 4 teacher, the wonderful Mrs. Bradley, and she was an older experienced teacher and she she said, you know, Leslie, I think it'd be a good idea to get him tested cuz he's just kind of off the rails sometimes and Jordan was very funny. He's a very funny guy, and he was good-looking. He had lots of friends, and he got away with so much stuff in school. And it was, you know, his personality that his teachers loved him, even though he was often disruptive and so on. But having said that, so we did get him tested. And like I said, came back low-level ADHD and dyslexia, some dyslexia, not severe dyslexia, but, you know, so things that were causing him, as I look back on it now, Retrospect is a wonderful thing, you know. I, I say I see that smoking pot for him was a way to slow it down. Just mm-hmm. you know, he was burning hot and just pot did it for him, alcohol did it for him. Of course, at the time, all of us parents were worried and we were telling our kids to stay safe was basically it. We didn't think they were going to die from pot or alcohol, really. I mean, right. they were kids that didn't have driver's license or anything like that. And they'd sort of go to the swimming hole and party down on a Friday night or something. Um, so we were always talking to them about it. But certainly my then husband, Jordan's dad and I, we weren't hard line. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm an old hippie. I mean, I you know, I started smoking pot you know, when I was 18 or something like that, and taking drugs recreationally at that time as well. So I was less conservative than a lot of other parents, I think. Mm -hmm. But I could sort of see the writing on the wall here. I could see why Jordan did what he did a lot of times. Mm -hmm. But I didn't connect it with the fact that he would become addicted. Right. Uh, I, I really didn't. There was a big blind spot for me there until, you know, until he was addicted. Uh-huh. I just knew that drug use, overusing pot, even as a young person, you know, we heard the, I don't know if it's a rumor, if it's true, you know, that pot on the young brain can be not good for development. So that was worrying to me. I knew nothing. Essentially, I knew nothing about addiction. Right. Didn't enter into the picture. The, the use of drugs and alcohol did, but I don't know, somehow uh-huh. addiction just wasn't there in my mind.
0: Yeah. Like you have that idea of, you know, that commercial that with the fried egg, right? Like this is yeah. your brain, this is your brain on drugs. And then, yeah. yeah. And I think every parent kind of expects your kid is going to, like, I expect my kids will drink. I expect they'll try pot. Not that I'm excited about it, but I no. you kind of almost feel that this is a, a rite of passage. Right. And then when I was younger, I mean, I'm I'm 40 and I just turned 40 and, you know, it's like, When I was younger, it was pod and drinking was pretty much it, right? Like some kids maybe tried ecstasy or like there was mushrooms or some LSD, right? And, And now you kind of hear that kids in high school regularly use cocaine. And that to me is scary because we know that cocaine is laced with fentanyl now often, right? And it just seems that... It's becoming more prevalent and as a parent you like to think that you know things that, you yeah. know, and that you like I know what your kids are up to, but I am always hearing things that are shocking to me, right? Or um, and I, I feel like I maybe have my ear to the ground a little bit because I do work in addictions and so I do hear about things, but I still hear things that sometimes shock me and it makes me worried. But you're right, I think my parents certainly know nothing about addiction. You know, I remember telling my dad that I was going to rehab for Alcohol. And I think I told him I was going for like a couple of months. I think he thought I was going to go for a week or something. Right. He's like, well, yeah. what? Two months? Like, what, what, yeah. why do you need to go there for two months? Right. And yeah, yeah there's I, so
1: much that isn't known by so many people. I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, those of us who work in it, like you and I, we know a lot. Mm-hmm. We know way more than the average person, and yeah. and when I'm speaking publicly, I'm speaking to those people saying, look, I'm a mom, this happened, mm-hmm. and here's what we need to do, you know, yeah. and try to explain addiction, try to explain why we need to decriminalize, why we need to have safer supply, and so on, and explain it in a way that is understandable to even the most stigmatized thinker, because no one did that for me, and back then, nobody, like nobody was talking about it.
0: No, exactly. And that's why I think that mom stop the harm and putting a kind of personalized spin on things is so important because most people don't know and most people don't understand and there is so much judgment and it's so unfortunate and I think that a lot of times what I like to do is I read articles like for instance that one on the weekend but I always read the comments because I think you can see a lot about the greater view of the public and maybe not everybody reads newspaper articles so I mean you're probably not getting necessarily like a broad view of everybody in society but if you read the newspaper article comments, you get a good view of what people are really thinking, and some of them are shocking. You know, like with the oh, I negativity, and uh, you know, and, and it, it's distressing sometimes because you'll read these articles and then you'll read the comments like, "Oh, well, if these people just didn't do drugs, then this wouldn't happen," or you know, their like, "Well, these, yeah, it's their own fault," or "These people just need to be put on an island somewhere or something." And, yeah. Yeah. and it's shocking, like the the ignorance, and that's why I think it's so important having lay people almost doing education because there's enough people out there who are quote-unquote experts who can explain the neuroscience behind addiction and the biochemical basis and all of that. But it's, I think, human stories that really touch people and get people and seeing faces and seeing the people affected and having those stories out there because then I think people really realize like this can happen to you and this isn't just some nameless, faceless person. And I feel a lot like working in the downtown east side. People are just so quick to dismiss people with mental health issues or the homeless as almost inhuman. But no, they're people, right? And they're people with lives and families and children. And so easy to just dismiss them and forget about them and just devalue their lives.
1: Try and tell people when I'm speaking publicly and the subject comes up of the downtown east side and, and the most vulnerable people. I always just say to them, look inside that person is still that little baby that was born Mm -hmm. that was loved by somebody and things happened. that person is still in there and in fact I say it for all people who are addicted I get stories upon stories of moms especially families who have a loved one still with them struggling with problematic drug use and it's hard Uh, I mean I said this publicly just the other day, it's really a hard job to live with and keep close your child who's addicted. It's mm-hmm. nasty sometimes, it's unsafe sometimes, but you have to have a landing place for them, you know, they're still that kid is still in there, you know, that mm-hmm. was that little chubby toddler who you loved more than anything in the world. So I think at the basis of it, what we do in Mom Stop the Harm is we do provide the faces we include the entire spectrum of people who use drugs. You know, there's, as you know, there's people who are using recreationally, they die because they got Mm -hmm. fentanyl. And then there's the people that are strongly and and maybe forever addicted on the other end and don't have homes and don't have what they need. And just we try and make everybody on the same spectrum of dangerous drug use because of the toxic supply. I mean, Mm -hmm. when I was young, when I was like 20 and 18 and and I was taking psychedelics, I was doing mushrooms, I was smoking pot. You know, we all were, not all the time, but, mm-hmm. you know, we knew that these drugs weren't going to kill us. Right. You know, and, and we moved through this with some respect for the substances. It wasn't just big party time. In fact, it wasn't party time. So I grew up with a into adulthood with a respect for LSD and a respect for psilocybin, for these drugs that were so powerful. And I feel very resentful in a way, not that I would encourage kids to take these drugs, but that we have to say, and I said it the other day, you know, in public, I said, in a way, I feel like Nancy Reagan, you know, just say no, you know, just you don't do pills and powders right now. It's just not worth the risk. And that's too bad. It's terrible, in fact.
0: Well, I mean, what's happened is that it's taken away choice from people because you're not actually choosing to do a substance. You don't know what you're doing. So it's kind of removed a person's right to choose what they're using because you can choose to use cocaine, but you're not actually choosing to use that substance. So, I mean... People are basically gambling every time they choose to use something. And I hear people all the time, and I think maybe it's changed a little bit now because we are so deep into the opioid crisis and people, I think, hopefully have come to understand a little bit more that they aren't safe. I think it's it has started to sink in, but I know, you know, a couple of years ago, you would still hear people say like, well, not my drug dealer, you know, or yeah. "Oh no, like I just use crystal meth. But I mean, enough people have died using crystal meth that has been tainted or using cocaine that has been tainted or or people have realized that no they do checks and 100% of the drug supply is fentanyl now you know i mean i don't remember the last time i saw a urine drug screen of, of somebody who uses opiates that it was didn't have fentanyl in it i mean yeah. someone who is buying it on the street i mean right. but it's i think people are, are now starting to understand it but for a long time there was some denial there still
1: and I think, too, as you know very well, I'm sure more, better than I do, that now people are choosing fentanyl. And so we have a whole different level of problem here with um, dosing and consistency and all of that. And there is the, the um, answer to stopping the deaths is providing pharmaceutical alternatives. And yes. that is the only way right now. It's the only way we're going to stop the deaths. There is no other way in the short term so I'm very committed oh I was going to say about Mum, stop the harm too to just go back a little with so the three of us we started our our mission was to advocate for better drug policy that's Mm -hmm. that was the whole thing and then as members joined us members joined us you know and now we're up to like 2,000 members and about a thousand of them did I already say this (laughs) about a thousand in in BC Mm -hmm. um, we started to realize that families were needing support families who are grieving, families who had loved ones still struggling. So we veered very heavily into support and support groups. We got funding from the government to expand our support groups. They're doing really well. You know, the families are loving it and very grateful and all that. But I'm at the point now personally where I'm turning my attention to do advocacy again. And I have never felt more strongly about any of the work we've done as I do right now. Because we see these numbers like we did last week. Mm -hmm. uh, Everything the government has done isn't enough and or isn't working because the deaths are going up. The number of deaths are going up. COVID, okay, fine. Yeah, there's definitely a correlation there. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you can't attack it with everything you have, you know. Right. Uh, So I'm frankly really pissed off at government more so than I have been ever. And I'm burning bridges, but I I really, it's worth it at this point.
0: (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So you basically went from a grieving mother and, uh, you know, I just have to applaud you because a lot of people with what happened to you would basically have, that would be it. And I'm sure it was horribly traumatic and you grieved, but you basically used that and you've become an advocate and you've started this foundation. And I also wanted to tell you, not last summer, but the summer before I was in Winnipeg and there was a memorial there for people who had lost people to the opioid crisis. And I met some women there who had lost. Children and they were members of Mom Stop the Harm in Manitoba, and I think that's when I realized how big this movement is with Mom Stop the Harm. You know, I thought it was just in BC, but they said no, no, and I said, oh, I heard Leslie speak, and they were like, oh, Leslie, she's just so wonderful, and you know, I mean, they were just singing your praises. So this is nationwide, Mom Stop the Harm. Anyways, I'm digressing, but um,
1: and I we are we are definitely across the country, and recently in the last few weeks or months. We had one of our moms and myself on W5, a segment on W5. Of course, that's nationwide. Mm -hmm. And after that, we got, honestly, over 200 new members Mm -hmm. uh, in in the days following, which meant to me that, well, first of all, lots of people listen to W5, but also there are so many people in the woodwork that haven't spoken out about their child or their loved one's death who are ashamed, who... Are struggling with their loved one in and out of rehab and all of that just people who need the support we're just we're humbled by it we can't even believe it and then in the last week or so I've been on media a lot and mm-hmm. it's, more joins are coming in so there well when you consider probably at this point and I'm gonna guess so don't hold me to this but since 2016 in Canada probably somewhere between 2023 20, to twenty three thousand to 28,000 people have died you know, in the last five years from mm-hmm. drug harms. Yeah, That is a lot of families. That is a lot of grief. That mm-hmm. is a lot of pain and suffering and failures of the system. So it's, it's mind-boggling, frankly. I, I'm still boggled by the fact that we cannot get the federal government and the provincial government here in B.C. to do what they know is right. In a, an expedient
0: way. Oh yeah, way. that's what I was going to ask. Um, so, yeah. I mean, so basically, this, so this has become gone from a personal tragedy to you, and now you are you're working for BCCSU. You have, you know, Mom stopped the harm. So now it's professional. And I also, I mean, I work professionally in addiction, but I also I've struggled with addiction. So I mean, I've met a lot of people in addiction. My first sponsor in AA, I'm no no longer a member of AA, but you know, she died of a, a fentanyl overdose and. I've lost a lot of people that I've met through recovery uh, of overdoses. So, I mean, this has become personal to me. So, I mean, we both kind of have both personal stake as well as professional stake in this. And I know for me personally, I, I often feel like you'll sometimes make just baby steps of progress, right? Like you think that you're getting somewhere and then, you know, it kind of seemed like numbers were going down and then COVID hit and now we're at higher numbers than ever. Or you see that some things seem to be working, but then they're not. I often feel like working in addiction, it doesn't seem like we're making gains, you know? And sometimes it can be really depressing almost because you feel like you just... Want something to work, you want to see change, and change comes so slowly, if at all. And like you said, I feel angry a lot of the times too, because I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that we're not doing enough. We had kind of talked before we started recording, you said you had some ideas. What would you like to see happening that we're not doing? Mm,
1: okay, <laughs> first of all, first of all, we should be, and we say we. <laughs> Hmm. not me and you I mean but right. that's what we're working at but yeah um, we as a as a as a culture and as a community should be training children at a very young age to identify and talk about their feelings mm-hmm. and we should spend a lot of time on that and not like helicopter parents or anything but just give them a vocabulary to talk about their feelings when they're stressed, when they're anxious, and watch that as parents. Watch our children to see what makes them stressed, to see what gives them some grief, and to be able to mitigate that with strategies. There are programs out there that do that beautifully and without being intrusive and all of that. So that's one thing, is teaching kids how to express their frustrations their emotions their need to do risky behavior and all of those things and to have strategies and things that help them even mm-hmm. you know my kid had adhd okay well let's mold that into something that he can use for the rest of his life and and it can be done okay so mm-hmm. that's one thing and as the kids get older they get to know more and they get to know more about themselves i used to go into schools and talk about drug safety i can't even yes. do that anymore because nothing's safe You can't say, I mean, Mm -hmm. you can only say, well, test your drugs, but still, who's, you know, when you're 17 at a party and somebody gives you something, you know, you have no way to test your drugs. Anyway, so that. What about
0: going into schools and teaching Narcan?
1: Well, we've done, a lot of schools didn't want naloxone in their schools, which is pretty stunning. Um, But anyways, so, so education and the more kids know about what's going on you know currently in the drug scene they can hopefully make better choices and make make choices that work and you know the whole safety use don't use alone et cetera et cetera. But the thing that we really need to do right now is we need to press the government to build a system. <laughs> All these systems, as you would well know, the systems that are in place are siloed nobody's talking to each other they're not coordinated so we need to have a continuum of care for people who are addicted and i said this the other day in public as well you know we need care that where the person comes to any medical facility doctor nurse whoever it is says i need help all the way through till the day that they walk out the door and are healthy As healthy as they want to be, they're in recovery as whatever recovery means to them, that they're able to rejoin life in a better way. And Mm -hmm. the whole spectrum has to be in place, just like it would be for if you had heart disease or if you had cancer, if you had diabetes. You know, every step of the way, you're monitored, you're given what you need, you're supported, and you're alive. That's a big one. Okay. So within this also is the concept of pharmaceutical alternatives or safer supply, whatever we want to call it. Uh And people need, people who are addicted need to have access to low barrier, low stigma, regulated, safe supply of pharmaceuticals, whatever they actually need. Mm -hmm. Not what a a doctor or a nurse who doesn't know them say they will give them. For instance, when Judy Darcy rolled out the safe supply risk mitigation during COVID, they were giving people and a little bit of Dilaudid, a little bit of hydromorphone, but not what people needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people walked away from that and said, no, I'm going to buy it on the street. Well, right. that didn't work, did it? You know? So I would like to see safe supply and decriminalization of people who mm-hmm. use it.
0: So yeah. when you say it's not what people needed, what do you think people need? Fentanyl?
1: I don't know. If they yeah. need fentanyl, then they should get fentanyl. Mm-hmm. I mean, fentanyl, we use it in the hospitals every single day, mm-hmm. all over the world. It's right. readily available. It's cheap. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, I, I would love everyone to recover. Mm-hmm. I've I've never met anybody who's addicted who has ever said, I don't want to recover. Right. I mean, I'm sure, there's people out there, but I think in their heart of hearts, they would like right. to be well, you know?
0: But it's on, I mean, it has to be on people's own terms, not because we Absolutely. say you need to get better now. And I agree with you. I mean, from my perspective, what I see is we have studies that show that people could be retained and had good results on IV hydromorphone. But That was when people were addicted to heroin. People aren't addicted to heroin now, they're addicted to fentanyl. And from what I've seen, and this is like my experience, we are not retaining people anymore on IV hydromorphone. It is not strong enough. Despite giving people doses that would probably kill large animals, they are still using on the street. We can't keep them. We can't retain people in these programs. And I don't know what the answer is. I'm not saying that I know the answer, but maybe we do need to start giving people clean supply of fentanyl, if that's what's going to retain people in treatment. Uh, maybe we Absolutely. We why just, wouldn't we?
1: Yeah. You know, why maybe. would we not take that person who is addicted to fentanyl and, you know, is got a great tolerance? Who are we? Who is a doctor or a nurse to decide that that person shouldn't have what they need? Yeah. We should not be judging. We should be helping. And, you know, there's a ton of evidence that shows that if we give people what they want, if they get their safe supply in a regular, low barrier, non stigmatizing way, they are much more likely to come back when they want treatment. Mm -hmm. They're much more likely to trust the system. They're much more likely to say, I need help. I don't want to be addicted anymore. And we know how to do that. Yeah. You know, titrate, we know, like I say, Suboxone, Methadone, Katie, and all the ones that. Are helpful in tapering down. Nothing is impossible here. Right. We have the evidence. We have the drugs. We will soon have a supply of diacetyl morphine in this province and maybe in this country. That's coming. That's going to be interesting how that rolls out. But but we can save people's lives,
0: mm-hmm. and that
1: is the bottom line. That's what that's what I want. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: And I agree with you with the decriminalization and because drug users are not criminals. They sometimes exhibit criminal behavior when they're up against a wall, but they're not inherently criminal any more than you or I are criminal. That's right. And I think when you criminalize behavior that is actually a disease, then it just further stigmatizes those people. Yeah, what's more
1: stigmatizing than being a criminal for a condition, a health condition that you have that is serious and should be attended to?
0: Yeah. especially when you consider that if you're an alcoholic and I don't particularly like that word but um right but it's if, you, that, if you have
1: yeah. alcohol abuse disorder yeah, yes. yeah
0: yeah then you're not a criminal but if you have a different a substance victim, yeah yeah exactly then then you're a criminal like basically it's all stigma so in our province we actually have done a lot more than other provinces I have a good friend yeah. in Manitoba right now They're much further behind than we are. You look at Alberta, and they're still talking about abstinence-based programs. Oh, yeah, Alberta's... Probably the worst. Yeah,
1: Manitoba just just gotten the locks on descheduled like that. I know, just in the last month or two. Like I, I couldn't know.
0: believe it. I know, but I mean, there's still always more that we can be doing, and we're talking about people's lives, right? So people continue to die, and they continue to die at an alarming rate. And the other thing is that we have um, things like Van do right? We have people who are drug users who are there saying, "This is what we need." Listen. Listen to these people. These are people who are users of drugs who are saying, "Like, please help us, keep us alive."
1: No, and Vandu and BC Yukon, you know, and there's Hood and all these amazing activist groups who. Oh man, it makes me crazy. Like Garth Mullins and I talk about this, and we work on this, is getting us to the table. We walked mm-hmm. away from the table. I don't know if you knew about this, but this is no. probably like six months ago before the election. We walked away from the table of the committees we were on with the provincial government because they weren't listening to us, and we made a big deal of it. Mm-hmm. They didn't care. They didn't care. So yeah. we gave up for a little while there till government reformed, and now we're back at it. I'm, I've been invited to a couple of committees now, and I'm really glad because I have way more anger and passion than I did two years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so drug users must be at the table people who use drugs must be at the table there is mm-hmm. no question families must be at the table everybody who you can think of who has lived and living experience must be at the table for any mm-hmm. policy discussions
0: mm-hmm. working in addictions we have peer workers and they are invaluable and we know that peer resources are invaluable and So why not take that lived experience and use it to make policy changes? Why not ask the people who are there on the front lines and say, what do you need? The people to be asking are the people who have been there, especially now with the fentanyl crisis, because I just think that people don't understand that the fentanyl, I I just think, is such a different beast. The addiction rates and the tolerance that we're seeing and the high doses that we're needing for opiate agonist treatment for the fentanyl, I mean, it's just really, like, unprecedented. And we're going to need to do something different. Like, something different needs to be done. We can't just keep doing the same thing because it's clear that it's not working. Well, we've
1: got Organized crime making the drugs. And they're in it for one reason only, and that's the money. And as we know, fentanyl is very cheap. Fentanyl is a cheap drug. And so it just... (laughs) I always just say, you know, like, if we take the market away by giving people what they need in a legal, safe way, we take the market away. And and the organized crime, that will still be there. You know, there'll still be drugs on the street, but mm-hmm. it won't be like it is now. It won't yeah. be like that's a person's only choice. Drugs should be kind of like alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, prohibition didn't work back in that right. early part of the 20th century. So what did the government do? The government regulated alcohol made it legal and regulated it because when it was unregulated people were dying and got gangs were happening the whole thing was happening so they they regulated it they legalized it okay and here we are today you know it's not perfect there's problems with alcohol use and so on Mm -hmm. but like i i always say like i I like the martini i know that i'm gonna be able to have a martini and not die when i take Mm -hmm. you know a gulp of my martini um and drugs most drugs should be in the same if people want to take i know this is kind of radical but you know people if they if i wanted one day I just said, well, i'm just wanting to smoke some opium today mm-hmm. i think it would be a day to do that i'm depressed or i don't feel i just need a break mm-hmm. i should be able to do that mm-hmm. you know um, if i want to smoke a joint well now i can smoke a joint you know it's, yeah. it's legal nothing bad happened when they legalized cannabis Yeah, Uh, that's a little going a little far. But eventually, like you said, people need to have choice and people also need to be respected in what they want to do with themselves.
0: Well, one of the arguments that people make is that if they legalize it, then everybody's going to start doing it. And, and all means, the research shows that is not true. I was just going to say, but to your point, yeah. though, like, what are the chances, though, that you're all of a sudden going to decide you want to smoke opium or, like, start injecting heroin, right? Like, I mean, I don't think if it's legal, I don't think I'm just going to tomorrow decide that I want to shoot up heroin. This is the thing, though, is that people are in fear, and that's where education comes in. And a lot of the reasons that they don't do these things is because of societal fears that are out there. So, and then that's why I think that mom stop the harm, and I Other advocacy groups and educating people is so important because there is so much stigma. And I think that in order to get buy-in for a lot of these things that might seem so radical, like Mark Tyndall and his vending machine or... You know, all these things. I
1: totally support, by the way. I'm
0: a total fan of Mark. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I I think he's great too, but I mean, is actually getting education out there, is actually like talking to people and engaging and getting the conversation started. Uh, And then maybe these things won't seem so crazy if people understand that, no, if heroin's legal, people aren't just gonna start smoking it in the streets, right? Like the average person isn't gonna do that, just like when they started opening up. And, you know, the most ridiculous thing I heard is so when cannabis became legal, and the shop started opening, they actually, it's not legal to open up a cannabis shop, I can't remember within how far, but within, you know, X number of block radius of the downtown east side. Oh, uh huh? Yeah, like, because that's the problem, right? Like, cannabis is the problem in the downtown east side. But it's just, what a, how patronizing is that? As if the people in the downtown east side, can't make their own decisions and can't be trusted to have a cannabis shop in their neighborhood so the government just made the decision that oh well we can't put a cannabis shop there it's just so ridiculous
1: it is uh, well I don't know if you remember this a few months ago I can't time kind of escapes me but H- Horgan Premier Horgan came out and said first of all addiction is a choice that was one thing he said mm-hmm. that was really good to do and then the other thing he said was that people who are addicted can't make good choices. <laughs> and I, uh, when I heard that, I went ballistic. I wanted to do whatever it took to get to him and say, well, I'd like you to meet some of my friends who are addicted, who mm-hmm. are award-winning journalists, who are activists, who have, mm-hmm. you know, are helping people on the front lines, who make good decisions every single day, smarter decisions than Morgan will ever make. Mm-hmm. You know, like he doesn't know anything. And he's the one driving the bus. He is the one who is driving drug policy and stigma in this province. Um, You know, it was worse with, well, actually, I was going to say it was worse with Christy Clark before when she was premier. But she took me to Ottawa once to talk to the health minister about the opioid crisis. And I don't like Christy Clark, but at the same time, she paid attention to the crisis. You know, she was trying to be part of the solution. So... Anyway, don't get me going. No, you already did. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I always feel like that whenever I hear Jason Kenny open his mouth. Like I just oh like shove my fist in it. And I, I mean, I, oh, I, yeah. I shouldn't. I shouldn't be violent, but like you know, oh, he's he's a he's a
1: bad man.
0: Yeah, he <laughs> once referred to the people in the downtown east side as human carnage.
1: Oh my god.
0: Yeah, that was. A, I'm, that
1: not, was I'm cool. not surprised that he said that. But
0: yeah,
1: he's, he's a piece of work. He is a piece of work. Did you ever meet? Well, I better not get into personalities. Never mind. Listening. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, one of one of our BC right wingers uh, that you might have met at some point or other is now the advisor to Kenny and Shandro and all those people who make policy I- uh, around drug use. Anyway, and you know, mm-hmm. they're it's the old abstinence based. Mm-hmm. Let's have treatment, but no harm reduction. Let's have lots of beds, but let people die who don't get to the beds. You know. <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Well, I thank you so much for coming on. you're very welcome yeah again I just think that you're great and Mom Stop the Harm is so great and I just think you guys are doing so great with putting faces to the crisis and aside from the work you're doing with Mom Stop the Harm I think it's great just the advocacy that you're doing on your own I saw the one interview that you did where someone asked you know are you doing this for your son and you said no I'm doing this for your son and I think that you are doing so much for families and for people's children and it's just a testament to human resilience that you face such grief and then now you're fighting
1: and you know what all the not all but many many of our members who have lost a loved one especially a child within our uh, uh, everything i do is for mom stop the harm by the way and, and mm-hmm. bccsu i'm the family committee lead and we do the same stuff but yeah. um all the members I'm not gonna say all, but most of the members, once they become members and start to understand about addiction and understand that they that you ha- they have support and that we understand and we won't judge and all the things that make them feel safe, then they actually many become advocates because yeah. they have the courage to step out because they have the rest of us behind them. So it's, it's a learning thing too. I'm so proud of all, mostly you know mostly women. Ninety probably ninety-eight percent women in our membership. Mm -hmm. I am so proud of them. I feel like the mother hen, you know, I would do anything Mm -hmm. for them. And yeah, that's, that's how our movement grows.
0: Yeah. We need to just stop the shame, stop the stigma around this issue. And, and that's what we're trying to do with this podcast. It's on mental health and addiction falls under that. And we want women to come on and share their stories and just let people know that these issues are normal. Addiction is okay. Mental health issues are okay. We don't need to be in isolation and shame. And. We have people sharing their stories who live with mental health and addiction, and then women who are advocating like you, women who've lived with family members, and just all sorts of stories. And and yeah, thank you for contributing to that. I think that you are an inspiration to, to many people. And yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thanks, Kendra. Thanks for asking me. Thank you so much for listening to us. If you enjoyed the podcast or even if you really, really hated it, please leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's how we're going to keep this podcast going, and we'd really love to keep delivering podcasts to you every week. And you can find us on Facebook at Crazy Bee Podcast, Instagram at Crazy Bitches. Podcast, and on our website at www.crazybitchespodcast.com. Thanks for listening, crazy bitches. We'll see you next time.